this is Dr. Horton. This is going to be part three of our acute abdomen GU applications. In this next segment, I'm going to talk a little bit first about adrenal hemorrhage and then cover a potpourri of GU abnormalities. This particular segment is based on an exhibit that one of our second year residents did, Michael Sasserdote, and he presented at the RSNA last year. We're going to be discussing adrenal hemorrhage, and adrenal hemorrhage is seen in about 1% of autopsies, but its prevalence in living people is really unknown. Clinically, it's kind of confusing the nonspecific symptoms. It can occur in multiple different clinical settings, and sometimes it can be clinically occult. And in other cases, you can have severe bilateral adrenal hemorrhage, which can be life-threatening. Radiographically, it also can be confusing depending on if it's acute or subacute, it can mimic a mass. And it can occur sometimes as a result of an adrenal mass. So that can be confusing too. Potentially is life-threatening. So you need to remember that bilateral adrenal bleeds can be fatal, especially in a severe cases, the patient will develop adrenal insufficiency, which will cause death ultimately. So again, adrenal hemorrhage is relatively uncommon, but it is potentially life-threatening. Most of the time we think about it in neonates where it's a lot, lot more common than children and adults. In fact, it's the most common cause of adrenal mass in infancy, and it usually occurs in the first weeks of life, and we're not really going to discuss neonatal hemorrhage. In adults, you can see traumatic hemorrhage. Most likely, it's going to be a blunt abdominal trauma. It can be unilateral in 80% of the cases, or bilateral in those cases, you would be really concerned about adrenal insufficiency. Or in the non-traumatic setting in adults, the most common cause would be stress, so it could be burns, ICU patients, any really um, severe medical stress will cause adrenal hemorrhage. You can see it very commonly with patients on anticoagulation or with other bleeding diathesis. And adrenal tumors can hemorrhage. And then sometimes you just have idiopathic adrenal hemorrhage. Bilateral adrenal hemorrhage is seen in 15% of patients who die of shock. So a really severe medical emergency or medical crisis and stress can cause adrenal hemorrhage. And it will occur when over 90% of the adrenal tissue is destroyed. So what happens is if you have severe stress to a person or you have an adrenal tumor, that will cause increased ACTH. And that will cause increased arterial blood flow. And it will also limit venous drainage. And that's a setup for adrenal hemorrhage. So what are we going to look for? In the acute setting, you usually will see a round or oval mass in the adrenal gland, which would be high attenuation on a non-contrast study, just like hemorrhage looks anyplace else. Sometimes it can appear as asymmetric enlargement. It may or may not be associated with adrenal or renal vein thrombosis, so it's important to look there. And usually it will be homogeneous, and it certainly should not have enhancement with IV contrast because it's just a hematoma. If you're looking at a non-contrast study, then it may overlap with findings of adrenal adenoma or carcinoma, although typically they would not be such high density in a non-contrast study. But if you had a contrast-enhanced scan, certainly the appearance would overlap. The differential would also include things like metastasis, lymphoma, adrenal hyperplasia, or even infection involving the adrenal glands. Again, adrenal hemorrhage overall mortality is pretty high, 15%. And in special cases of meningococcal septicemia, then it can involve the adrenal gland. You can get adrenal hemorrhage, and you can see very, very high morbidity and mortality. So let's look at some cases. Here's a nice case of uh, adrenal hemorrhage due to anticoagulation. 
you see an axial and a coronal volume rendering from an IV contrast enhanced CT. So we didn't know we were looking for adrenal hemorrhage. And you see a homogeneous, hyperdense, solid appearing mass in the right adrenal gland. And the CT scan one week prior has shown normal adrenal glands. So that makes it easy. If you have a normal study and then a study with a high density adrenal mass, you know that you're dealing with adrenal hemorrhage. In this case, we have a pre-contrast axial image and a coronal IV contrast enhanced image. And you see a very heterogeneous left adrenal mass with peripheral soft tissue density and kind of central fluid attenuation, which is necrosis. This was also due to adrenal hemorrhage due to anticoagulation. In this case, you can see the CT picture can be very confusing. It certainly would overlap with a variety of adrenal tumors because it's basically subacute and you're starting to get necrosis and it's starting to resolve. So it can really look very similar to a mass. Here's another patient with hemorrhage due to anticoagulation. So this is a 45-year-old woman with a malignant thymoma and had a DVT. She had severe back pain and abdominal pain. And you can see these axial contrast-enhanced images shows ill-defined soft tissue stranding around both adrenal glands, which look enlarged. Adrenal hyperplasia can cause enlargement of the adrenal glands. But usually you wouldn't see that stranding around it. And the stranding was a clue that this was bilateral adrenal hemorrhage. She developed adrenal insufficiency, and of course she had to um, be started on cortisone replacement. Here's a follow-up of that patient, and you can see in the acute setting the adrenal hemorrhage. One month follow-up, so this is a great case. You can see the stranding really has resolved, and now you see very low density within the adrenal glands, almost fluid density. And then on the two-month follow-up, again, you're left with these little, almost little nodular areas in the adrenal glands from the hemorrhage resolving. Here's another patient with adrenal hemorrhage due to anticoagulation. This is a non-contrast scan. You see a very high-density elongated mass in the left adrenal bed, and this is pretty obvious that this is going to be hemorrhage resulting from the adrenal gland. Other non-traumatic causes, remember any patient with critical illness or stress, sepsis is a classic cause of adrenal hemorrhage. Post-surgical patients are at risk. Pregnancy, ACTH therapy for um, inflammatory bowel disease, for example, burns, neonatal causes, as we mentioned, and then adrenal neoplasms. Here's an example of a critical illness causing adrenal insufficiency. The patient was also anticoagulated. So this was a 65-year-old man who underwent a meningioma removal and post-op was complicated by seizures. And you can see axial IV non-contrast enhanced image shows bilateral round hyperattenuating adrenal masses. So that's the classic appearance of bilateral adrenal hemorrhage. Adrenal hemorrhage can be spontaneous, as in this case, 63-year-old man after a radical cystoprostatectomy. He presented with hypotension, nausea, and vomiting because he had adrenal insufficiency. The blood pressure stabilized after IV steroid replacement. And here you can see that there's a mass in the right adrenal gland, and you can see thickening and some increased density in the left adrenal gland. Now, when patients are in the ICU, they're commonly given steroid replacement as prophylactis prophylaxis because they know that this high-stress environment is a cause for adrenal insufficiency and adrenal hemorrhage. And just to remind you that you can hemorrhage into a mass. So you can hemorrhage into an adrenal met. The most common would be lung cancer. 
and rarely it's been reported in hepatocellular carcinoma, mats, melanoma, and others. You can hemorrhage into a primary adrenal tumor, such as a pheochromocytoma, myelolipoma, or neuroblastoma, and rarely hemorrhage has been reported in adrenal cortical carcinoma, adrenal adenomas, or adrenal hemangiomas, which are uncommon to start with. Here's an example of hemorrhage into a pheochromocytoma. It was a 46-year-old man with hypertension presented with a spontaneous right adrenal hemorrhage, and the right adrenal arterial supply was embolized, and subsequent ultrasound biopsy yielded pathology consistent with a pheochromocytoma. Here you just see a big mass with a lot of hemorrhage in the region of the adrenal. So just like when you find spontaneous renal hemorrhage, sometimes you need to follow it up because it could be an underlying mass as the cause. Here's an example of idiopathic adrenal hemorrhage, 59-year-old who was diagnosed with endometrial cancer and had an FDG avid left adrenal mass, so they thought it was probably going to be a MET based on the PET. It's a very heterogeneous mass that you can see. There's a cystic kind of necrotic component. It looks a lot like that other case of a subacute adrenal hemorrhage that I showed you. And in this case, we were worried that there was peripheral nodular soft tissue enhancement. But what happens is they did a left laparoscopic adrenalectomy and it was all an organizing hematoma. Remember traumatic causes such as uh, trauma in general, severe trauma, blunt trauma, or penetrating trauma can cause it. And then iatrogenic causes, adrenal vein sampling. So when we're in there messing around near the adrenal glands or doing procedures such as adrenal venography, that can also be a cause. And certainly a biopsy or liver transplant could also cause adrenal hemorrhage. Here's an example of an iatrogenic adrenal hemorrhage, 57-year-old man with hypertension, hypokalemia, right flank pain after adrenal vein sampling. And you can see that there's all this stranding around the adrenal gland as well as an ill-defined soft tissue enlargement, and that was a result of hemorrhage. And a post-operative hematoma. So this is a patient with metastatic mucinous adenocarcinoma presented with hypotension after debulking and intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and the patient improved after hydrocortisone but later died from organ failure. And you can see that you have small bilateral hypodense adrenal masses due to the hemorrhage that were not present on the preoperative imaging. There are different patterns that you can see of acute hemorrhage. You can have a solid or an oval mass, an amorphous solid mass. You can have a solid mass with central fluid density or cystic areas, and that's often, you know, evolving hematoma can appear differently. And Or you could just have stranding, which is another form of hemorrhage. So pearls for adrenal hemorrhage. Adrenal hemorrhage, highly variable CT appearance. The hematoma can mimic an adrenal mass. In many patients, the distinction cannot be made on the initial CT that you need follow-up. Bilateral adrenal hemorrhage carries a significant risk of adrenal insufficiency, so you need to identify this and communicate it to the referring physician immediately so they can replace the steroids. Okay, in our last segment, we'll talk about uh, potpourri of acute GU abnormalities resulting in abdominal pain. We need to talk a little bit about GYN problems. So, for example, most GYN disorders can present with an acute abdominal or pelvic pain, whether it's uterine, ovarian, or postpartum complications. Typically, when you're suspecting a GYN issue, you'd start with ultrasound. But the CT may be performed in cases where they're not sure of what the etiology of the pain is or if they're trying to clarify something seen on ultrasound. PID, for example, is one of the most common causes of acute pelvic pain in women. Most cases are the result of an ascending infection. 
And usually it's a mixture of anaerobic and aerobic organisms. Patients present with fever, leukocytosis, and cervical motion tenderness. This is really a clinical diagnosis. They may get an ultrasound. The CT, truthfully, could be completely normal in patients with PID. But in patients with complicated PID with an acute salpingitis that's progressed to a tubo-ovarian abscess, CT can be very helpful. So you're going to see bilateral thick-walled low attenuation adnexal masses, which are really hydrosalpings or pyosalpings. You often will see ascites, thick septations. This is going to look like abscesses and infections. Gas is actually pretty uncommon. So here's an example of tubo-ovarian abscess. You have these tubular fluid-filled collections seen in both adnexa, worse on the left with some septations. These are pyosalpings and tubo-ovarian abscesses. Here's another case in the woman. You can see there's a little bit of bladder. You see the uterus and these big, thick, septated structures in both adnexa. Here's another tubo-ovarian abscess. In this case, the ovary is a little bit high. It's anterior to the right psoas muscle, and you can see there's like a corpus luteum and then these extra fluid-filled densities, and these are tubo-ovarian abscess. You always need to be on the lookout for postpartum complications. Ultrasound or CT may be useful in this setting. You can see retained products of conception. Typically, that would be easier on ultrasound. Septic endometritis, you may see air, which is a bad sign in the uterus. Uh, abscess, hematoma, uterine perforation, ovarian vein thrombosis. So let's look at some other GYN issues. This is a patient with a dermoid. You can see that there's a mass in the right adnexa. You can see that there's fat within it. This is a pretty good size mass, could certainly cause pain, may result in ovarian torsion, which is sometimes difficult on CT, but better evaluated on ultrasound. Here's a postpartum patient who came back with fever, and you can see that there's a large uterine abscess. Another postpartum complication in a patient two weeks after a cesarean section, you can see that there's air bubbles within the uterus and the parenchyma of the uterus. So this is a critical finding. This is septic endometritis, life-threatening condition. And the last couple minutes, I want to talk about Fournier's gangrene. So this is a very important cause of GU pathology, and it was really described, you know, 1883. It's been around for a long time. This is basically a infection with a gas-forming organism that spreads very, very quickly. Typically, the source can be identified in most cases. It needs to be identified early, and it's aggressive surgical intervention. So this requires debridement. This is basically your flesh-eating bacteria. It'll spread very, very quickly because it's a gas-forming organism that travels very quickly in the soft tissues. Very high morbidity and mortality if the diagnosis is delayed. It's thought to be caused by some sort of minor, minor trauma to the skin, which allows access of the organisms to the subcutaneous tissues. It can be caused by severe urinary tract infection, which then spreads to the soft tissues of the perineum, or an infection that's in the perineal region already. It's often in debilitated patients, diabetics, alcoholics, cancer patients, or patients in nursing homes. They'll present with fever, pain, itching, swelling. They could have vesicles or pustules on the skin with a discharge, and they, the organism will cause gas in the soft tissue, so you'll get a crepitus. You'll be able to fear that, feel that there's air in the soft tissues. So again, it's going to be a severe subcutaneous infection, and then it results in a local, localized cellulitis that then progresses, and because a gas-forming organism can progress very, very quickly, two or three centimeters per hour, and this is an, basically a necrotizing fasciitis. It's usually a combination of organisms, and I've listed from there, it's not one particular organism, and they can all work together to cause this soft tissue necrosis. 
Again, it's classic in the perineum. That's why we're talking about in GU. What you're going to see is soft tissue edema, skin thickening, subcutaneous emphysema is the key. You know, this isn't just a cellulitis. This is a very severe infection with a gas-forming organism. Here's an example. Here's the perineum. You can see that there's air within the soft tissues and within the muscles. This is very abnormal. Could it be anything else? No, unless the patient was just post-op after flap reconstruction or something like that where you'd expect some air. This is a patient who is not post-surgical, comes in acutely ill with a high fever, septus. This patient needs to go to the um, operating room immediately for debridement. And in this case, it's so extensive it might be too far gone already. Here's another case, and you can see severe gas and emphysema in the muscles, in the rectus muscles, in the lower abdomen. So that's Fournier's gangrene. It often starts from an infection as simple as a decubitus ulcer, or here's a perirectal abscess that has involved the gluteal muscles on the right. And this patient is a setup for a gas-forming organism. It can also start from an infection in the groin, as in this case. You can see this is kind of the fold between the scrotum and the thigh. There's an infection starting, and again, this is a setup for a gas-forming organism. The last couple things we'll talk about, just miscellaneous GU infections, scrotal abscess. In this case, you can see the scrotum is thickened and inflamed, and you can see air. Here's a prostate abscess, so you have a fluid collection in the prostate. Another prostate abscess, an important clinical finding on CT. You could try to see with ultrasound. I would often use an endorectal probe, but these patients are very, very tender and may not tolerate it. And here's a case where you have emphysematous cystitis. And earlier in part one, we talked about emphysematous pyelonephritis, but this is emphysematous cystitis. So this is a gas-forming organism from basically a cystitis in the bladder that infects the bladder wall and causes gas. And this is more common than emphysematous pyelonephritis. And it, it, although it is an important finding to make, it's usually treated conservatively with antibiotics. It doesn't usually require surgery. So here you can see you have a cystitis with bladder wall thickening. You have air within the bladder wall and stranding in the perivesicular fat. And one more case of emphysematous cystitis, you can see all the air within the wall of the bladder. Again, it's usually an infection of the bladder by a gas-forming organism. It's more common in diabetics. It can be seen in patients who have chronic UTI or bladder outlet obstruction or neurogenic bladder, anything in which has stasis. And it's usually treated with bladder drainage and antibiotics. You usually don't need surgery. So that concludes our segment on GU causes of acute abdominal pain. And I hope I showed you that CT is really the imaging modality of choice for most of these patients with acute abdominal pain, including GU pathology. It's cost-effective, fast, highly sensitive for a range of things that are affecting the kidney, the urinary tract, or the bladder, or other GYU, GYN and GU organs. Thank you.